Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, um, joining us via Zoom, is my friend, Dr. Cameron Staley. Welcome to the podcast, Cameron. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you this morning. Tell our listeners how to say your last name after I just botched it. Well, you nailed it on that last try. It's Staley. All right. That's not a very hard name, so we're going to remember that. Um, We're going to talk, listeners, about pornography. And um, um, Dr. Staley is a psychologist. He's at the Idaho State University. He's active LDS. He's the father of four children. He got a degree from Weber State in psychology and then ended up getting a PhD um, and is at Idaho State University. He did a year of residency at BYU and he and has got very involved in helping people solve pornography. So that's the focus of this podcast. And and Cameron's done a TED Talk. We'll probably link to his TED Talk in the episode description so you can listen to his TED Talk. So if you're working to solve porn, if you're a local leader or a parent working to help someone solve porn, if your spouse or a family member, this is part of their journey, it's our joint prayer that the things that Cameron will share with you will be helpful. And as I've listened to him, um, this will be helpful. Is that okay for an introduction, Cameron? Yeah, that's wonderful. Just tell us about how you connected with this topic. Yeah, it's always helpful to kind of retrace my steps and figure out how I got here. And I think it all started in graduate school where my interest was in working with couples. And as I thought about the things I would need to know better, um, sexuality was one of those. So I thought, ah, I need to understand this area a little bit more. And, and there was a new faculty member who her background was in human sexuality. And so I kind of selected her as a mentor. and. And she asked me for a topic that we could study that I could focus on for my dissertation. And I remember I was actually sitting in church one day and listening to a speaker talk about how addicting pornography was and how disruptive it was to relationships. And that was really the first moment where it hit me that I had never really looked at the research on pornography. And I'd never seen any studies on if it was an addiction or how it impacted relationships. So I brought that up to my advisor and said, hey, could we study this? And she said, yeah, we've got the technology to do that. um, But this is pretty controversial. Are you sure you want to study this? And as a kind of naive graduate student, um, I just said, you know, it's science. We'll construct construct this study and let the data drive our conclusions. And so what we did is we invited people into our research lab who had problems controlling their viewing of pornography. And we monitored their brain activity using EEG technology as they watched sexual images and exciting films and nature documentaries. And I thought we'd be the first lab to show evidence that pornography was an addiction, just like other substance use disorders. And we didn't. That's not what we found. And I was really surprised by that. Um, But what we did find was that people that have a hard time controlling their viewing of sexual images also reported more negative feelings while viewing. They felt more anxious, they felt more guilty, more disgust. So even though we didn't find a neurological reason why somebody might be struggling with porn or an addiction-based reason, we found that emotions played a major role. But I think the challenge with that is when the media got a hold of our 
research. They said, oh, researchers disprove sex addiction. And that's not really what we did. Um, And they didn't really focus on the role of emotions, which is quite significant because we have effective treatments that can work with emotions. And yet we want to kind of discount that and say, oh, that's too simple. It's got to be something biological going on or neurological going on. But really, it does come back to the role of emotions. That's interesting. Um, just keep, because um, I like not putting the addiction label on pretty quickly. I think we've done that. And the more I've been in this space and trying to understand, um, I encourage people not to take on that label because I worry it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways and, and not clinically correct as you're teaching us. Talk more about how this is really an emotional concern or an emotional whatever vocabulary. Share with our listeners your thought on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd second kind of your experience around the addiction label. And, and now we have research to back that up. Um, Josh Grubbs is a pretty prolific researcher in this area. And he's found that people that are religious are more likely to label themselves as addicted, even though they're not viewing at higher rates than less religious individuals. And actually labeling yourself as an addict is kind of that self-fulfilling prophecy and actually may, may maintain this problem. And it's that label that gets affixed to our core that contributes to a lot of the shame. And so it kind of keeps us stuck, but also takes away our responsibility for our actions and behaviors. And that a label of addiction for me is really counter to that precious principle of agency where I believe that we are always in control of our behaviors. And if we adopt a label like addiction, it kind of convinces us that, oh yeah, I can't choose this anymore. I don't know why I clicked on this website. I'm an addict, I can't control it. And for me, that, that label really does interfere with changing our behavior. And, is, and for me, I, I choose other labels. Like I, I prefer to label myself as a disciple of Christ um, or a father or a human or a learner. For me, those are more effective labels than these more pathological ones. Um, But the piece about emotions is really key. So often what people don't recognize when they have urges to view pornography is there's an emotion that often precedes that urge. And so we have a lot of research now, and you may have experienced this with the folks that you've worked with, that often people that struggle with pornography they're actually less aware of their emotional experiences in general. So there's emotions going on. And these emotions, if you break down that root, it just means to put in motion. Emotions, what they do is organize and direct our behavior. But if we're not aware of our emotions, we're acting and we don't really know why. And so a lot of people are feeling stressed or they're lonely or they're overwhelmed or they're sad or they're even bored. And we're not aware of that emotion. And so instead, to kind of further distance ourselves from that, we do things like viewing sexual images or eating or scrolling through social media as a way to kind of disconnect with those uncomfortable feelings. But then those things that we're doing to disconnect produce feelings of guilt and shame. So now we got more of these feelings we need to get rid of. Uh, Keep looking at sexual images, masturbate to kind of get rid of those emotions, and then they come up again. So that emotion cycle fits a lot better with a compulsion model. And we have effective treatments for compulsive disorders. And that's the exciting news is if this is more of an emotional concern, 
we have treatments for that that are quite effective rather quickly. But if we keep focusing, oh, it's an addiction, there's nothing I can do, that doesn't direct us towards, no, let's start to understand what we're thinking and feeling in these moments that's really driving these behaviors. And if we can slow down and understand what's going on, now we can exercise our agency. So when we are feeling lonely, we can reach out to somebody and connect. Instead of like, oh, I don't want to feel that. I guess I'll look at sexual images to feel a little bit better temporarily and to get some little measure of connection. But then I'm going to feel worse again and then probably more likely to withdraw. But being aware of those emotions unlocks that precious gift of agency. That's a cool segment. I remember during my YSA services, I talked with so many great men and women that were working to solve this. A therapist taught me the iceberg principle, which is maybe a little, you'll have to see if this resonates with you. But she said, you know, sometimes what you see as a YSA bishop is what's above the waterline, the iceberg. And if you focus just on that, you're not going to solve what what the YSA is dealing with. So she would say sometimes for the sake of pornography, put pornography on the shelf Yep. and let's talk, let's, and the therapist may need to do that. A YSA bishop doesn't have the clinical training to do that, but can be aware of the principle and sort of get down to the bottom of the iceberg and understand what's going on here. And then you can solve long-term. The, and that's why I like where you get to the bottom of the iceberg, that it's an emotional concern. It's based on stress, loneliness, sad, bored, it's a compulsion. And so that just resonates with me, right? That just resonates with me from my experience and why we're not doing a very good job of solving this in the church um, yeah. because of the shame and the stigma and all of the negative, negative feelings about this, rightly so. But if you reframe it still as a sin, no one's taking that off the table, but as an emotional concern and a compulsion, it moves into a whole different category. That to me is much more likely to be solved. So talk about, you can go wherever you want to go on this. Um, I do want to mention for our listeners, I've mentioned this before. um, I have an Ensign article in the October Ensign on page 72. It's just my, I'm not clinically trained. It's just my seven tips for solving pornography. Um, Number, tip number three is don't be quick to use the label addiction. And we've kind of talked about that. But it's just interesting that you from a clinical perspective and me from a pastoral perspective, just with a lot of interviews are kind of coming to the same conclusion. Yep. Um, and maybe that's Heavenly Father helping us understand what's really going on here so we can help people and, and people that are walking this road have better tools to, to solve this. Talk about compulsion, Cameron, or anywhere next you want to go. Yeah, I want to speak to that iceberg because that definitely clicks with me. and. I think as we kind of group everybody together where, oh, you have a porn concern, those sexual images are the reasons why you're struggling. I think that is unhelpful, but also inaccurate for me. The reason why somebody is viewing pornography, it's it's a symptom of those underlying icebergs. And it's really just a coping strategy. And I think when we focus on, well, I got to suppress that symptom. I got to stop coughing. It's like, if you think if we had the cold or the flu and the goal was just to stop coughing, it's like, that's not going to treat the underlying cold at all. But there's been such a focus on don't cough anymore. We don't care if you're sick, as long as we don't have that annoying symptom. And it's like underlying that iceberg is often significant events in people's life. 
And as we've shifted from, yeah, just let's put porn down for a second. Let's look at what you've encountered in your life. Often I've seen people that have gone through really traumatic experiences or have had significant anxiety disorders or struggled with depression or there's been family loss or deaths in the family, really difficult things. And in some ways, they were just finding a way to cope with those struggles and life events. And for some people, pornography was that one thing that gave them some relief at times, um, but further drove that isolation and that shame. Um, so there's so much more to this story than, ah, oh, it's just pornography. And the people that I've worked with, once we uncover that, these are generally really kind-hearted, good people that are quite sensitive and yet striving to do the right thing. I found that those traits or attributes are often ingredients for a pornography concern. It's fascinating. Where it's like, I want to work really hard to do the right thing and get it all perfect. And I've really suffered in my life. I don't know how to cope. Often I see those are the types of individuals that struggle with porn. And that's where that compulsive pattern comes from is I've got these emotions. I don't know what to do with those. I don't have a lot of guidance around sexuality or just healthy emotion coping. So I found this thing that's working and I'm, I'm going to keep doing that. And I feel terrible about it, but it is something that helps temporarily. And they just kind of get stuck in that pattern. So for me, compulsion feels really like a habit where it's like, I found this thing that worked and I keep doing it, even though it's not really fixing the problem and kind of making it worse. It's like putting a bandaid on a broken arm. I feel a little bit better, but I still have that wound and that injury. And I don't know how to talk about that with people. And people now say, well, you got a broken arm, so we don't want to deal with you. It's pornography. It's disgusting. Get away. And so it just, it just keeps people stuck in that situation. I love the way you've moved it into this space that to me de-shames it um, and contextualizes in a way that just makes it um, solvable. I love the way you actually talked about really good people, that the core of them is actually even maybe sometimes better. Yep. You didn't quite say better, but you just recognize some of these men and women have incredible Christ-like attributes and incredible goodness, and it's that good nature about them that makes us um, sometimes more difficult to solve. And that was certainly my feeling, Cameron, as I just met with people during my YSA assignment. It was some of the best people I knew. And as I would meet with them and give them blessings, I just felt the core of them was so good. Yeah. And the Heavenly Father loved them so much. And yeah, they were working to solve porn. And so it just, it kind of, just those priesthood blessings sometimes, because then I felt he how Heavenly Father felt about the person I was meeting with. And that was very um, helpful for me to better see them the way yeah. Heavenly Father saw them. Talk about so if we move it into this different category, how do you then, what's your advice to help someone solve it? Yeah. And this was interesting to me when I went to BYU as a, someone who just finished my clinical psych program. I fully anticipated the counseling center there would be using the kind of church support addiction recovery program. And they weren't, and they hadn't been for a really long time. And instead, they had been using an approach called acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. So ACT has been around for about 30 years now. And when I showed up at BYU, they'd been using ACT for maybe 10 or 15 years for pornography concerns. And ACT has been studied 
um, for a long time. There's over 300 randomized clinical trials on the effectiveness of ACT for things like depression and anxiety and trauma, even seizure disorder. Um, but it's also quite effective for obsessive compulsive disorder and other compulsive related disorders like skin picking or hair pulling. And so they applied that same approach for pornography concerns with the hope that it'd be helpful because pornography concerns kind of resemble the compulsive pattern. And then a few years later, um, a researcher, Michael Tuig, who trained under Steve Hayes, who developed ACT, he's at Utah State University. He did the first study on the effectiveness of ACT for pornography concerns. And then later he replicated that study in a larger clinical trial. And it, it was incredible what they found. In just 12 sessions, so 12 weeks of ACT, people that were struggling with pornography for years were able to reduce their pornography viewing on, on average by over 90% in 12 weeks. And for me, that, that's incredible, incredible to see that. And so when I looked at you know, what treatment approaches are actually effective, I've only found three published studies looking at the effectiveness of any treatment approaches for pornography. And all three of those were on acceptance and commitment therapy. So BYU had been offering this even before that research was there. And now that research is available, where it's like, we actually have a treatment approach that has scientific evidence that it's effective. And so this idea that if you struggle with pornography, you're always going to be an addict. This is a lifelong issue. For me, that mindset is quite unhelpful and pretty problematic. When really, if we shift to the, this is an unhelpful coping strategy. If we increase our awareness of our emotions, let go of this label of addiction and battle with pornography and start to focus more on living our values. And that's one thing I've seen is individuals have devoted all their life and energy to get rid of porn and they've lost sight of what is the purpose of life? You know, what is it about as far as pursuing your relationships and cultivating those connections and enhancing your education and cultivating your relationship with God Instead, it's all focused on got to stop porn. And so ACT really shifts that. Instead of trying to stop porn and then live your life, let's start living our life now. And then maybe you may not need to cope with the distress as much through using pornography if your life is more fulfilling and consistent with what you value most. Wow. Keep just, uh, I'd love you to go more into the actual therapy acceptance commitment therapy yeah so act its its roots are in behaviorism but also it follows a and a linguistics theory and so it really is looking at the role of language and that's something that is unique for us as a human species that we can have all our basic needs met we can be fed and clothed and have shelter and be quite successful in our life and still be unhappy and it's like, well, how is that? Like other animals, they, they got food, they got water, they're pretty content. But as humans, because of that language, we're able to tell ourselves stories about what should work, what shouldn't work. We're an addict, we're not an addict. And that, those kind of narratives that we construct and those labels that we affix to ourselves start to interfere with, with what's really going on in our life. And so what happens is we start to believe our thoughts about what should work instead of listening to our experiences about what is actually working. And so what ACT is doing is kind of infusing a lot of mindfulness-based approaches 
to start to be more aware about how active our mind is in trying to solve problems. It's trying to solve problems all of the time. And yet it's not great at fact-checking. It's not great at knowing if its solutions are actually workable. And so a lot of people have tried like accountability buddies and addiction approaches and filters. And, and our mind thinks that those things should work. And yet when we take a step back, for a lot of people, those things haven't changed behavior. They haven't reduced pornography viewing. But our mind says, oh, keep trying them. Somebody told me it should work. We're going to keep doing those. And so like you, it sounds like in your experience, you've taken the time to listen to people's experiences about what's helpful and what's not. And you've started to observe, yeah, some of these things that we thought would work and we tell people that should work may not actually be that effective. And that's what ACT is. It's let's actually look at the things that we're doing, if they're helping or not. And if they're not, let's set them down and maybe try a different approach. And that's really a beauty of it. It's actually helping people get back in touch with this moment, their thoughts, their emotions, actually evaluate if their efforts are working or not, and to let go of this language that kind of muddies the water and get back to let's focus on the things that are so meaningful for you instead of the struggle with sexuality that may not be a problem, actually might be a divine gift, that that may not be the problem. Why are we battling with something that can be so good and meaningful and part of the plan? Let's focus on the plan and the meaning instead of this struggle. Talk about, um, I don't know how many church leaders, local church leaders are aware of this. Um, I wasn't. I mean, I was aware of the 12-step, um, the PARG program, perhaps Real DS Services, if I'm remembering it right, P-A-R-G, the 12-step. Oh, the ARP? ARP. Or, yeah. yeah. Talk about how the ACT therapy, is it completely different than the 12-step addiction recovery? Or is it talk about, because I think some of our listeners may be familiar with that and not familiar with ACT. Yeah, they're quite a bit different. So if I think about kind of the, the legacy of 12-step approaches or addiction approaches, they really were there to fill a void. So there were people struggling with substance use problems for many years, and mental health professionals didn't have great treatments for that. So it often came from religious communities saying, hey, we need to help people that are struggling with substances. Let's create this support network and Alcoholics Anonymous, and let's develop these steps so people can have guidelines. And I found that the support element in addiction approaches is quite powerful. And yet the actual steps and model isn't a research-based approach for treating substances um, or pornography concerns, but it's really an attempt to have some guidelines and structure. And I think when people are struggling with something as complex as human sexuality or pornography, our mind is grasping for something. It's like, give me some guidelines, give me some steps, give me anything to figure this out. But that structure, structure is kind of an artificial structure that's really not getting at the core part is we need to understand these emotions and get more comfortable with feeling these. And instead our mind's like, no, I'll just do some steps. But really we need to take the time to see what is going on inside. And that is, that is a lot more challenging to do. And so ACT doesn't follow kind of a steps approach. It really is encouraging people to develop that curious mindset 
to be curious about these thoughts and create more space for emotions. And so maybe one of the key differences between addiction approaches and ACT is like when a sexual urge shows up, what do you do with it? Um, often from an addiction approach, it's like, let's get rid of it. Let's suppress it. We got to reach out. It's unsafe. It's dangerous. And that mindset kind of keeps those sexual urges around longer. It's like you're always on guard for this. And that stress and arousal is just going to increase the probability. Your mind's going to be like, hey, look at porn to soothe yourself. You're pretty overwhelmed and stressed here. Whereas ACT is saying when there's a sexual urge, instead of judging it as bad or wrong or sinful, let's see if we can understand it. You know, what's going on? Like, what is it like to feel this urge? Do you notice any judgmental thoughts? Do you notice any other emotions that are going on? Let's create more space for this. And as we slow that down and create that space, you now have choice. And that's where agency shows up. Because we don't have to scramble to get it away. We actually can experience an urge and experience an emotion and then select a behavior that's consistent with our values. All those things are possible if we slow down and create more space. Are urges okay? Absolutely. I thought you'd say that. Yeah, that, they're, they're part of the plan. And I think a lot of us have grown up in contexts where we don't talk about sexuality. We're not comfortable with it. We're not able to have conversations. So when it, sexual arousal shows up, we're like, oh, this feels wrong. I don't know what to do with this. I need to get rid of it. And so what people have found is, well, if I look at sexual images, that wraps up the arousal, and then I masturbate, and it gets rid of it. And it's like, oh, relief. Like, no more desire, no more arousal. I feel comfortable again. Until the urges come back, and it's like, oh, I don't want this. I need to, it needs to be gone. And so people haven't developed that capacity to experience sexual arousal, which is a pretty fundamental part of the plan of salvation. And But it's like, ah, we don't know how to talk about it, and it just feels wrong. Let's get rid of it. But if there was more comfort about, yeah, this is how bodies work. Arousal is part of it. Sometimes arousal shows up in inoperable times, inconvenient times. It's okay. This is bodies. This is new for us. This isn't a problem. If there was more acceptance of, yeah, it's okay to have desire and urges and fantasies. That's okay. Then there wouldn't be this need to, I got to get rid of it as fast as I can by looking at sexual images and then masturbating. I, that really resonates with me. So I'm with you on everything you said, just so our listeners know that I don't think Cameron's out in left field. I'm in a, <laughs> I think he's right. I think it's really helpful what he's teaching us. And I've come to the same conclusions that all those urges, feelings are normal and yep. need to be normalized. And that then helps make better decisions and takes the shame away. I thinking about our culture, I don't know if it's true of our church culture or just culture in general, that we kind of want a formula to solve things. So we like 12 steps. We like the four things I need to do. We like sometimes being told exactly how to be a committed Latter-day Saint. And, and maybe that starts with Boy Scouts for men and Girl Scouts, where we kind of know what we need to do. Um, and so we get into this kind of tell me what to do and let yeah. me know the 26 merit badges and I'll become an Eagle Scout. And I think you keep coming back to this word mindfulness. And to me, that's, yeah. that is a word that I haven't got my arms around. I yeah. didn't even understand it five years ago. And more people are talking about that word. And to me, you're kind of, I think you're teaching us, this isn't a 12-step thing. This is kind of you working on your own. Yeah. Um, 
and really understanding what's going on here and being mindful about it, which means being thoughtful, being spiritual, taking time, meditating, and understanding what is occurring within you and getting your own sort of personal formula on how to solve this. So talk more about that. That's it. That's beautiful. And I think about kind of the analogs in scripture. Um, I think about, you're right, as Latter-day Saints, we want that formula. We want to be told what to do and we'll do it. Like we're pretty obedient. We want to follow those commandments. And I think that's why many of us, that iron rod um, kind of vision of the tree of life really speaks to us. Where it's like, you tell me exactly what to do and I will hold to that rod and I will get there. And I think about just a couple chapters later, Nephi and Lehi and their family show up in the wilderness and it's a different scenario. And I think we often want this straight path and this rod and life should work that way where if I do what I'm supposed to, I'm going to be okay. But life for me is a lot more like the wilderness where it's like, Hey, where'd that path go? And I don't, I don't see that rod anywhere. Uh Oh, and now I don't know where to find food and, and where shelter. And I think about this little Lehi's family, they wandered for eight years in this wilderness, trying to figure out how to navigate this. And I thought, but they still weren't alone, though. They still had guidance and inspiration. And they had the Liahona, which is pretty much the same thing as the iron rod. But the principles are a little bit different, where with the Liahona, it works contingent on a couple of things, is listening to it and our faith and being aware. And for me, mindfulness is part of that. So we need to be aware of what our needs are, and we need to be attentive to listening to that divine guidance, and we need to counsel together as a family. There's going to be conflict. This is going to be more challenging. And I think that is often kind of what life looks like. And so as a psychologist, I was, this thought hit me one day where I'm like, wait, I think emotions are a pretty big deal. Why don't we talk about that more in scriptures? And I went to the Book of Mormon and did a search and it hit me that heart is referred in the Book of Mormon like over 500 times. And I had never associated heart with emotions before. And I'm like, wow, how am I so dense to not to see that connection? But there's such a focus on softening our hearts. And I've thought about that principle. And when our hearts become hardened, we no longer can hear that spirit and hear that inspiration. And that's really all that we've asked, been asked to do is have that contrite heart, that, that broken spirit that, that can really allow us to receive that inspiration. And how we do that is often being aware of those thoughts and emotions. And for me, I'm a very analytical person. I, I, I would prefer to use science and kind of rational thought. But the more I've looked at my experiences, often the spirit has spoken to me through my emotions. And some of the most profoundly spiritual experiences in my life have been very emotional. And I think about like, oh, I don't always like to feel those though. And I think a lot of men are socialized to be more thinkers than feelers. But I think that's the key. And I think the spirit is speaking to both our thoughts and our heart. But that's a really key part of mindfulness. And so as as I've thought about that principle even more, I think about wisdom. The definition of that for me shows up in the scriptures too. And it's, it's thoughts and our heart. And I think about with mindfulness, it is this ability to be present 
in our experiences just as they are without judging them or needing them to be different in any way. And I think about our divine heavenly parents who are omnipresent. They're able to be here watching all of us kind of playing around in our sandbox, making mistakes, learning, getting our knees. And I'm sure there's times where it's like, oh, I wish I could just intervene. This would be so much easier. And yet they are present with us in this experience. It's unhurried. There's not judgment there. There's a desire for us to learn and grow, but also space for us to make mistakes and to commit sin and to repent and grow and heal from that. So I think about how central that principle of mindfulness is, and maybe that is a godlike attribute, to be present without needing it to be any different and to allow this plan to move forward. It's really cool. I love where you went to Lehi in the wilderness, and I love where you went to the word heart. Um, we're going to talk about a book you wrote in a second. Um, talk to, um, I think in the church, it's a little easier for a single man or a single woman to talk about pornography with a friend, the priesthood leader, with a parent. And I think there's a, and I don't have any experience with married couples, because um, my church service in that space was with single people. But right. then my guess is there's a bunch of people that got married, thought just getting married would solve their porn problem, and they were fine for a while. Now they've got, you know, and you know this, now they've got a serious porn problem, at, and they're married, and they yep. don't know what to do. They don't really want to talk to their spouse about it. They don't want to talk to their priesthood leader about it. They don't really want to go to school. So it's just really shamed and closeted. Talk to that group of people. That could be men and women yeah. that are sort of like, I, if I talk to my spouse, I'm worried this is going to ruin my marriage. And it's just this cycle. Yeah. Talk to that group. And I know each case is different. So it's hard to give general counsel when each situation is different. But just, I just feel impressed to have you talk to that group that's listening right now. And you're right on. There, there's definitely unique differences, but there's, some general patterns and trends that I've seen. And one of those is that belief that, yeah, I'm struggling with porn now, but once I get married and can be physically intimate with my partner, that'll go away. And that doesn't happen. That's, that's not how it works. And the reason for that is, is this struggle with pornography is not really a sexual concern. It's much more of an emotional issue. So that belief that, well, when I get married, having access to sex with a partner isn't going to address an emotional concern. And so that doesn't make a lot of sense for people where when you're married, you're actually going to have more responsibilities. And now you're going to navigate other people and there's going to be jobs and careers and having children. There's going to be even more stress, more fulfillment, more connection, but even more stress and challenges and heartbreaks. And so if you're still using a really primitive coping tool to manage emotions, it's going to show up again when you're married. That's just kind of how it works. And I think the challenge is we don't have a lot of comfort around sexuality. So we're not even aware of our own sexuality or our interests or desires. And we get married and kind of have this belief that it's just going to be magical and work. It's going to be great. And yet we don't have many conversations. We're uncomfortable around that. And I've discovered this principle that um, this, this should be so simple, but it hit me really powerfully that if we're not able to talk about something, we probably shouldn't do it. 
And I think that principle applies to sexuality. And I think about there's probably many couples that are engaging in physical intimacy and are not even comfortable about talking about it. That's interesting. Having that conversation about, you know, what is comfortable, what's enjoyable, what's pleasurable, what are things we should do, shouldn't do. Let's have conversation around values. Instead, it's like, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) That's uncomfortable. And I think about, oh, if we can't talk about it, we really probably shouldn't do it. And so really cultivating that we need to have more conversations about this. But instead what happens is couples get married and are so hopeful and eager. And then, yeah, that old coping strategy shows up and it's devastating for both parties where one party's like, wow, you're, you're cheating on me. Like, why would you do that? Or, you know, what's wrong with me? Am I not attractive enough? And it's because it feels like a sexual concern, but it isn't. It's, it's really more of a coping strategy. And so now both partners are hurt and then they both withdraw. And when we're disconnected, that person's probably going to turn to that coping strategy again to feel better. So it just kind of continues where we're just kind of hurt. We don't know a lot about sexuality. We don't have the tools to have conversations. And that chasm gets wider. And there's also that fear that comes from the culture that if somebody has a porn problem, They're going to assault people or molest children, or it's it's just going to get worse. And that's not the case. That's not how it works with pornography concerns. But there is so much fear. But what I've seen as I've worked with couples, that if one person has a pornography concern, it is a tremendous opportunity to learn more about each other and to learn how to support one another. And I've seen people where in a relationship, one of them had a porn concern and they developed tremendous communication skills and a lot of love and compassion for each other in their learning. And they found ways to relate where one person may use pornography to cope with emotions, but the other partner might use food or social media or shopping or gaming. And really the function is quite similar. It's just that in this kind of religious context, we call some of those coping strategies sinful and disgusting and really bad. But the other ones, it's like, well, they're not healthy, but they're not going to prohibit you from a temple recommend. But really the function is quite similar. And yet as we start to see like, oh, I don't struggle with porn, but I understand why you turn to that. I might turn to food or I might turn to social media to check out. And that compassion and reaching out and understanding is how we can heal and grow together. So for me, pornography doesn't have to be a deal breaker. It can be an opportunity to grow together. You know, we've been doing 300 plus, plus podcasts, Cameron. That last segment's one of the very best we've ever done. You know, I'll re-listen to that. There'll be listeners that re-listen to that segment. I love the word concern you're using for pornography instead of addiction or problem. Yeah. I love that word. You've used it over and over again. I think it's a great word. I love you spun that whole question into hope and, and, and recognized it can be painful. So you didn't minimize yep. the, the situation. You're not glossing over the reality of a porn concern. But I love the way you just spun all that into an opportunity for a marriage to come closer together, develop vulnerability, compassion, better communication skills. I think that's what Heavenly Father would want in these difficult times is to be able to 
through the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the love and just perspective also go that direction. And I love where you compared pornography as a coping strategy. You're right, it's a sin, and it can, um, with similar things that people will do that aren't sins. And you're not taking the sin away from it. I think you're just helping us all put it in the context of what's going on here. That then, to me, makes it much more likely to solve because you're, you're putting it in the right context that it should be in, and you're taking away some of the fear um, about where it, you know, some of the th- narratives we hear. Yeah. It's a great segment. Just keep going, man. Yeah, I love how you, you brought that together because when there's so much fear, when those emotions are heightened, the likelihood of using porn goes up. And that fear is going to separate those couples and that cycle is going to perpetuate. And I think about when we sin, my vision of the Savior is not him with arms folded, shaking his head. It's his arms are outstretched. And he says, stand up. Let's learn from this. Come to me. I want you to grow and progress and move forward. And I think about the adversary. He loves shame. He's like, when you make a mistake, like guilt is motivating. Like, oh, I made a mistake. I feel bad about that. Let me repent. I'm going to do better. Guilt is motivating. Shame instead says, oh, it wasn't that I made a mistake. I'm a mistake. I am a bad person. And shame says, hide, withdraw, go away. The atonement no longer applies to you. And that is the adversary's tactic. And I think that shows up. And and that for me is probably one of the most devastating parts of pornography. It's the shame piece. And it convinces you that you no longer have access to your friends, your family, your partner, or even the savior. That his atonement no longer works for you anymore because you saw sexual images. And I think that that is such a lie. That no matter what we do in life, our Savior's arms are stretched out still. And he says, get up. Let's learn. Let's keep going. He doesn't say, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. I don't care. He's not saying that. He's like, we need to learn. That is what repentance is. Let's turn again. Let's realign. What can we learn from this experience? What tripped you up again? Yeah, maybe there is heartache there. Maybe there are emotions. Maybe it's really difficult to be vulnerable. These are the lessons we need to learn in mortality. And I don't know this, I speculate, but I wonder in the pre-existence how we experienced emotions. I have no idea. But in mortality, emotions are such a physical, biological event that are happening at such a kind of base hormone chemical level. And I wonder if emotions are a new experience for us. It's like, oh, we haven't had these at this level of intensity before. So to think about here we come to life, we've got these really powerful emotions and sexual urges, and then this belief that we can't ever make a mistake. It's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to make a mistake. Like that's learning. But to think like if we were learning to ride a bicycle and it's like, I can never fall. But you've never ridden one before. Like I promise you, as you learn to ride a bike, you're going to fall. But if we have people there to coach us, where it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll hold your back seat and we're going to start in a parking lot. We're not going to like start yet a hill and say, good luck. Like if we have coaches where people can talk to you about biking mechanics and safety and waiting till you're old enough to go down this hill. If we had that same philosophy towards sexual education, I don't think we'd see the pornography concerns. But instead, it's like when there's a mistake sexually, we want to pathologize it as, oh, that's an addiction. For me, I'd say, no, that's more sexual development. 
there's going to be a learning process. There's going to be mistakes. And some of those we call sin. But we got a remedy for that too. And that's our elder brother. It's like, yep, it's okay to learn and make mistakes. That, that is the plan. It isn't, oh, you made a mistake. The plan's frustrated. It's like, no, that, that is the plan. And if something as powerful and as important and as sacred as sexuality, there will be a learning curve. And there will be mistakes. And there's always hope. There's always a safety net there. Our Savior's there to say, yep, I'm here for you. Let's keep going. That's a great segment. Um, I thought one day, you reminded me of something I thought that Heavenly Father could have set it up so that it's harder to control our sexual urges as we get older. I was on a long walk, I thought. You know, so here I am 60, the 20-year-olds could kind of be giving me pointers. Okay, you're getting to be 60. <laughs> this is kind of your life, these 20 years. Are, and, and I just recognize that as um, part of the plan is that a lot of this occurs, you know, in an earlier part of our life. And, yep. by, and then I, when I hear you talk, I think, well, this is Heavenly Father's plan to help us learn principles that come into our lives versus managing all this. And like riding a trike, he didn't expect us never to mess up. Um, he just expect us to learn and grow and further understand ourselves and these motions that are part of us and are normal and good. And so I love the way you're just making this normalizing just the process of mortality and the access to the atonement. When we fall off that tricycle, we have a way to move forward in a wonderful, hopeful way. And I think at the end of the day, Heavenly Father, I think he's less concerned if I sin, Cameron. He, he's, I think he's more concerned if how I, what I learn from that and if I'm able to make my way forward in a more thoughtful way, just like when falling off a tricycle, a parent you just would want to learn that as a learning experience. I don't believe we add to the Savior's burden by each sin. I think he's paid the price. We're not making his burden heavier every time we mess up. That thinking to me just makes increases the shame and the self-loathing because we're yeah. now we're making Christ our savior elder brother who died for his burden worse because of what we've done and I just don't believe that yeah. and I think he loves to forgive I think he just like I think he actually that brings him emotional joy because he's paid the price and so when yeah. we do that so I really love what you're teaching us and the hope it's creating and the understanding of the gospel more things you just like to share with us um, just uh, in this subject. Yeah, every time you talk, it just brings up more ideas. And I love how you talked about that. And, and I think I love this idea of eternal progression. It's not eternal perfectionism. It's eternal progression. That's the path. And I, and I understand this better now that I'm a parent, where my kids make mistakes all of the time. And for me, I'm just so excited when they learn and they do better. I'm not like, I can't believe you made that. I'm never going to forgive you. As a parent, I love my children unconditionally. And it brings me so much joy when they say, Dad, I messed up. And I'm like, okay, how can we learn from this? And they learn and move forward. Those for me are some of my favorite, absolute favorite moments in life. And I think that's how our heavenly parents see us. They're so excited for us when we learn and are able to move forward. And tip number one in this article that I wrote is know that you are a child of heavenly parents who love you. And I write here, um, if you're working to overcome compulsive pornography, I'd actually word that different after talking to you. You might feel like pulling away from Heavenly Father because you think you're not worthy of love 
or help until you solve it. That's exactly what Satan wants, to isolate you from everyone who love you with the idea that you can overcome pornography on your own, and then you'll be worthy of love. Because of your divine nature, you are always worthy to receive hope, inspiration, and personal revelation from Heavenly Father and the healing power of Jesus Christ. Don't pull away from them or the people you love. And it's the idea that is gradually changed for me is that worth is not earned. Worth Ah. is set. Um, Worthiness, you know, can come and go um, as far as being worthy to go to the temple. But we're always worthy of God's love. Just like you're talking about with your own four children, they're always worthy because they're your children that you love them. And you don't expect them to be perfect. And you want to keep the conversation going as a father with your kids so that you can kind of walk with them as they're making their way forward. And that, I think, is really important. I think culturally, we sometimes created a feeling that there's even primary songs talking about earning our worth or making the right choice. And some of the words I sometimes now pick up on primary songs create this narrative that I think we need to, you know, Amy Pearson on a podcast just said, my worth is set, everything else is experience. And I I really like that. So I'll just turn it, I don't want to break my cardinal rule of trying to let my guests speak 90% of the time. So (laughs) just keep talking, Cameron. (laughs) Oh, I love that. And, And I appreciate you referencing your Ensign article because when I read that, I thought, whoa, did we compare notes like everything you wrote in there and those principles that you've just learned through your experiences. I thought, wow, this is someone who's listening. This is someone who's in tune. Well, you're and kind. Those principles, I thought, wow, those are principles I've learned as well, just by trying to learn from people that I'm working with. And, and then thinking about <laughs> again with my kids, the absolute hardest part as a parent is when my kids struggle and they withdraw. And they say, dad, I, I messed up. I don't want to talk about it. I want to lock myself in the room. And that's, as a parent, I'm like, oh, I do not want that for you. I do not want you to hurt alone. I want to be there with you. And I think that is helpful to get that perspective. And I'm sure that's what it's like from our heavenly parents. But I like how you brought up the, that if sexuality or sexual arousal increased with age, that would be a really different scenario. And yet kind of that peak of kind of hormones and sexual interest is in adolescence. It's interesting. Where you're not able to be married yet and you shouldn't be acting on any of these urges. And that is when it's the most powerful. And I've thought about that. I'm like, well, that's unfair. Like, that (laughs) seems like it's rigged somehow. It's rigged. I like that. But I come back to it. It's like, okay, yep. With that intensity. And I think about our frontal lobe is not fully developed till we're 25. And that frontal lobe is necessary for inhibiting impulses and making decisions and regulating emotions, that's not fully intact yet. And you have this intense sexual kind of urges and desire. That's guaranteed mistakes. It's going to be there. It's, and that's, that's okay. And that's okay. That's okay. Talk about sexual orientation. Um, just as a transition, we talked about arousal as I've met with gay Latter-day Saints. I've, in some of my private visits that they've reached out, I've you know, they talk about these feelings. They're like, they will, you know, have that same kind of arousal that a straight Latter-day Saint will have, a gay Latter-day Saint will have it for the same sex. And I've, I've tried to normalize that for them because I recognize there's so much shame in their life probably already being 
yep. a minority sexual a minority sexual orientation group. If I'm using correct vocabulary, it doesn't change the commandment keeping. Doesn't change our doctrine, but I think it. I I've always felt for gay Latter Day Saints, lesbian Latter Day Saints, we need to de-shame those normal feelings they would feel to, towards the same sex because that that any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I I think I got to practice what I preach and. You know, even as you bring up this topic, um, my heart feels really full and I'm, I'm getting teared up here because I think about with pornography, I can talk about that all day because I understand the behaviors and I understand the mechanisms and there's treatments there and we can treat that. But sexual orientation or being gay is not a disorder. It, there's not a treatment for that. It, it's not pathological and yet the individuals i worked with who are gay experience sometimes profound levels of shame and who and it, it breaks my heart to feel like people at their core feel unworthy and broken and wrong and many of the gay Latter-day Saints that I've worked with and transgender Latter-day Saints, um, and people are not even Latter-day Saint, but any sexual minority are some of the best people that I've met and have some of the most loving hearts and incredible insights. And I, I feel it an honor to spend time. It's like my counseling room becomes a sacred space to talk about what this journey has been like to grow up and be attracted to the same gender and feel that there's something fundamentally wrong with you and the pain and the isolation and shame that comes with that. And there's times as I'm working with individuals that um, there's a lot of times where I'm doing therapy and I don't feel spiritual kind of involvement. It's just, this is therapy. This is clinical. It's based on my psychological training and my desire to be a good human. And then there's other times where I feel like the windows of heaven open and I feel God's love so strong. And there's times that I share that with people I'm working with. And those moments that occur most often for me is when I'm working with people who are gay or bi or transgender, I feel so much love um, from my heavenly parents um, towards these individuals. And there's so much pain. And for me, I think about um, I love the parable um, about the Good Samaritan. And that one really stands out to me. And I think about who is the person today that's wounded and injured by the side of the road that church members would walk by, that important people would walk by, and the typical person would walk by and say, they're untouchable, or I don't want to interact with that person. And I think about, to me, what's hit me as I've reflected on that is sexual minorities. Um, for many, many years, people that weren't heterosexual or cisgender were treated like that injured person on the side of the road where it's like, I'm not touching it. I'm not stopping. You're unclean. And I thought about like, oh, that, that is who our Savior would go to first. And for me, I try to, the best I can, study and learn from my savior and think about who needs help who's really suffering and hurting and for me it's been sexual minorities and 
And there's not like a treatment because there's not like a disorder here. This is wilderness territory where I'm trying to help people understand their Liahona better and to discover their own path for them. And let's surround you with good people like Lehi's family. Well, some of those people in the family are good. Some are a little bit rougher. But how can we su- surround you with good people to help you navigate this journey? Because it's going to be challenging. And I think this journey is uphill and there's a lot of thick, dense jungles and you're going to get lost and hurt at times. So I want the spirit to be there. I want that divine guidance. I want good people around you. And for me, I'm the first one to volunteer on that expedition crew where it's like, I'm going to walk with you too. I want to be with you because so many times people say, I'm going to walk past you. And for me, I can't. Like, I will walk with you. And that for me is such a core place that that just sits in my heart. It's a great segment. A lot of pastoral compassion, just pure compassion in that segment. Um, I, I think in my own life, I have looked at um, sexual minorities um, on the side of the road as in the Good Samaritan parable as deserving to be there, to be honest. Um, and I would explain it away by it's a choice or if they just, they could, even if, you know, they had a path to unchoose this or, you know, prayer, the atonement, conversion therapy, or it's because they looked at pornography that changed their sexual orientation. And my feeling is pornography is a window into sexual orientation, doesn't change it. And um, so I've evolved to the point where, you know, um, I think I've wanted to keep everything in the nice tidy box, Cameron, why I could walk by and just say, yep. you brought this on yourself. So you deserve yep. to be there. I have no responsibility to you. And I just repent for that sort of thinking and have been doing sort of atonement work for the last few years for the people I've walked by in my life. Yeah. That young man in high school that I wasn't friends with, we went to our 40 year reunion, Cameron, and he had died and his picture came up in our 40th reunion. And I didn't know how to, as a Latter-day Saint, being friends to a gay person in our high school. And um, he had a pretty hard road because he didn't have a feeling of belonging and love as we just passed him by, so to speak. And we lost a lot of people. And, and so I just love that. And, I, and um, I love where you separated pornography from sexual orientation. I have, in the book I wrote, I took that on as a myth. Um, one of the myths is that someone's gay because they looked at gay porn. Yep. And that fundamentally changed their orientation. And that's wrong. Yep. Um, I assume you'd agree with that. And to me, I just think it's a window into someone's sexual orientation, not something that changes their orientation. So I have come to the same conclusion you have. And um, also that those people that I'd passed on the side of the road now are teaching me things about the gospel of Jesus Christ that my cis and straight members um, have never been able to sort of teach me in the perspective of a marginalized group of people and their insights into the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been helpful for me to grow and be a better Christian. Um, yeah. I don't believe LGBTQ people just exist for straight people like me to have better insights in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. I don't want to go down that road, but it's true. And we're, a better, we're all better off by having LGBTQ people in our life. Um, in our families, in our congregations, and we need to embrace their contributions and see them the way I think our heavenly parents see them and the way you see them. Any more thoughts on that? And I just, I love where I've always felt like 
the LGBTQ people I meet with, um, my, one of my fundamental pastoral goals, if that's a term, is to help them feel the love of heavenly parents for them and that how they're created is not a mistake and it is as intended and our heavenly parents aren't capable of making a mistake or being surprised and that they love this part about them if they're trans or gay or bi or lesbian. And I think I'm really comfortable that I believe that and that then that helps them to feel that they can accept this part about themselves and get better personal revelation because they believe their heavenly parents love this part about themselves. But it often takes therapists like you or psychologists to help them develop the tools to, to accept this part about them and to be at peace with this part about them. So any thoughts on any of that? Yeah. And I think first I would say, amen. And also, I don't know how I've, I've never chatted with you before to hear you talk. I'm like, why are you taking these thoughts from my head? <laughs> like, this feels so similar, but I think about my work with people and what I try to offer people is empathy. And for me, how I define empathy is I try to put myself in their experiences and take their perspective. Instead of looking at it from my perspective, like, oh, I wonder what that's like, I try to enter their worldview. And instead of just understanding, I try to fill that with them. For me, that is an act of empathy. And it's, it's a choice that I make. I can choose not to be empathetic with people. I can understand what they're going through and, and have some sympathy. But empathy is an act of compassion. And it's an act of vulnerability that I'm going to enter your world, and I'm going to feel what you have felt, and I'm going to go with you. And I think about that the atonement is the ultimate act of empathy. And I'm just offering a small little sliver of that, that I can see you, I understand where you've been, and the thoughts and emotions you're experiencing now, they're valid, they are real, they make sense to me, and they're okay. And I think about, we often view the atonement as, oh, that's the thing we use when we make a mistake and we need to repent. But I think Alma, he understood the atonement better than most because Alma had experienced heartache and physical injury from war. And he talked about the healing nature of the atonement for the infirmities that we experience and the heartache that we suffer, that Christ is there to succor us in those moments not just to help us with the sin part, but to actually be with us in these moments and walk with us. And I think Heather Holland talked about that as well, about comparing the atonement to an act of empathy. And I think that's what we need to offer. And I think a lot is Latter-day Saints, and I appreciate your honesty with that. And I'm guilty too. I look back at high school and I'm like, I was not sensitive. And I would probably laugh about, oh, that person's gay. I can't believe that. And even as a missionary, I'm like, oh, they're gay. Maybe we shouldn't teach them. And now I'm like, oh, I'm horrified at myself. But I think as Latter-day Saints and maybe many people, we have a hard time leading, leaving the 90 and 9. The people that are like us, that think like us, our safety, to go after the one. That's something that we believe we should do, but it's actually really difficult to do in practice. To say, I might have to leave my kind of culture or community at times to truly find somebody that's walking a different path that's lost and is scared and needs somebody to be with them. And so often when I'm working with people, 
I'm not there to say, hey, you're doing this wrong and you're bad. It's, I see you. I care about what you, and I'm going to be with you. And I, for me, that is, that's what my Savior taught me to do. I love that. You've done this already, but just talk directly, Cameron, to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints that are listening. Yeah. I've tried to think about why this is so core for me, because I am a straight person. Like, why does this matter so much to me? And I, and I think it is um, a couple of things that when people are hurting and there's a level of suffering there, for me, I'm drawn to that where it's like, I, I want to help and support you. And I think when I've worked with LGBT members of our church, that's sometimes as, as high as the suffering gets, where it's like, I am hurting so much and suffering so much and my family's bailed on me or my friends have rejected me and I feel like there's not a place in the church and I even think that maybe God made a mistake with me too. I, that loneliness is just unfathomable. And so for me, I, I work really hard to try to get closer so they're not alone um, to be there because that suffering, that heartache is real. And like you said, um, and this is something I appreciate. This is not something I expected as a psychologist, but I learn from everybody I work with. And I feel like I, I become a better person. I'm not there just to treat disorders. I am there learning and connecting and sharing journeys with people. And for me, I, I have learned so much and feel like my ability to take perspective and have compassion and love has been better based on sexual minorities' willingness to let me in and to allow me to join their journey. And for me, I feel honored with those experiences and those opportunities I have. And because of that, how sacred those connections are, um, I feel a tremendous call of advocacy where I have a lot of privilege as a straight person where it's like, it's pretty safe for me to talk about these things. And so a lot of people that don't have that privilege, it's not safe to speak up in church or to talk about how do I navigate my sexuality and my faith? Um, I have a little bit more privilege. So with that, I have responsibility to stand up and advocate and help and support and walk with people. And that's difficult to do sometimes in church where a lot of people talk about the others, like, well, those people that struggle with porn or those people that are gay. And it's like, no, those people are, are with us. They are our brothers and sisters. They are our family. They are in these classes and in this sacrament meeting. Those messages are, are quite painful. and often. When I've worked with LGBT people, they often say the, the most painful place for them on the planet is church. And it's like, oh, no, we're doing something wrong here. That should be a place of support and healing and comfort. And if it's not, how can I step in there to make that so? And so I do feel that, that personal responsibility and not waiting for a policy change or something else to shift. This is my calling. These are my covenants. Um, this is personal to me. Um, I'm here to follow my Savior. I, what can I do in this moment to make somebody's journey a little bit better? It's a great segment. And any of our listeners that haven't listened to my prior podcasts or kind of know my journey, I have a book you're welcome to read. It's at Amazon and Siegel Book called Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And it just goes deeper 
into the same, into the things Cameron and I are both talking about. And it's my attempt to amplify LGBTQ voices. There's hundreds of LGBTQ stories in there and parents who have great revelation for their kids. So that's a book I encourage listeners to read if you're not already aware of it. Talking, as we're talking about books, maybe in this last segment, that was a great segment, Cameron. And I just, I mean, I could talk, that's what brought me to the book is I think of a lot of things you just taught are things that I shared in the book. And I think um, a lot of Latter-day Saints are just using gospel principles to come to the same space here of of compassion and empathy and inclusion and honoring people's stories and sort of get into their stories and understand. And this is the part of more and bear and comfort our baptism covenants that we're trying to honor our covenants by understanding LGBTQ Latter-day Saints and sort of touch their cross. Sister Fiona Gibbons talks about, if I paraphrase to, you know, to bear one another's burden, you really need to touch their cross to understand the nature of the pain. Um, And that's what you're teaching us to do and what you're doing in real life. (laughs) Talk about your book. It's not on either of these subjects, I don't believe, but I just love the way you kind of taken the Lamanite people in the Book of Mormon and wrote a book or a novel. Tell us about that. Yeah. So yeah, as a psychologist, I can't put that mindset down. So the Book of Mormon is my absolute favorite book. Um, It is such an incredible text, not only as a way to bring us closer to Christ, but just the stories and how it's constructed. And I wrote a couple of articles for LDS Living where I've done psychological profiles on some of the prophets there and try to take perspective on the Lamanites. And I remember reading um, one day, this is many years ago, and reading the story of Zenith in Mosiah where he's overzealous and goes back to his kind of the land of their first inheritance and asks the Lamanites, say, hey, can we move in? And and I thought about the context here where Ephites and Lamanites have been warring for generations. And here's this little band of Ephites that goes back. And the Lamanites don't immediately attack them or kill them. They actually grant them space in their cities and they live there pretty peacefully for many years. And then I hear Zenith's narrative where, ah, oh, the Lamanite king, they tricked us, they trapped us. I can't believe this happened. And it struck me, and maybe other people are aware of this, but it hit me that the Book of Mormon is written from the Nephite perspective. And there are other voices um, in this story. And I think about whoever's writing the history has the power to write it in a way that's a little bit more favorable towards you and maybe a little less favorable towards others. And I never never thought about that before, but I wonder how that Lamanite king would have talked about those events. We hear Zenith's perspective, and he wasn't a prophet. He wasn't even a righteous man. And yet his record is there in the Book of Mormon. And I thought about it like, oh, I wonder what the Lamanites would have wrote. And then as I read the Book of Mormon, they referenced that the Lamanites kept records in several places. And I thought, oh, they, they were a record-keeping people. And then I think about this overall narrative where oh, the Nephites are the good ones and Lamanites are the bad ones. And isn't it great? We got these brave missionaries going out to teach these awful Lamanites. And it hit me again as I am now better able to take perspective that, whoa, there's a whole story here. There's a whole legacy among the Lamanite people that's untapped that I haven't even thought about. Instead of the faith of Ammon to go teach them, what about the faith of the Lamanites to listen and to reflect and to navigate their traditions and embrace a gospel? I thought, wow. 
And there's periods of time in the Book of Mormon where the people that were truly converted, that never wavered from their covenants, were Lamanites. And I thought, this is a precious truth. This is a precious message. And for me, the Book of Mormon is a conversion story. And there's so much to learn from that other perspective that often we dismiss in the Lamanites. But I think there's some key things where the Savior called a Lamanite prophet to prophesy of his birth. And I feel like that's intentional. And very much so in our climate now where racism is really poignant and highlighted. And I really appreciated Elder Oak's recent comments about this. And I think about there's racism in the Book of Mormon. And that doesn't make the Book of Mormon untrue. It makes it human and real. That we see ites, we see races, we see classes, we see mental health problems, we see difficulty with perspective. And I think about when the Savior comes to teach them, he asks them, didn't Samuel prophesy that the graves would be open? Like, why is that not written here in this text? And I think that was a call-out moment where it's like, oh yeah, he did prophesy, but that was Samuel, the, the black guy. I don't, I don't know if we want to include that. And I think that was uncomfortable for some people where it's like, ah, this message is coming from somebody that doesn't look like us or maybe doesn't have the same traditions. And for me, that's the beauty of the Book of Mormon is it teaches us about race and perspective and differences and mental health. I think about all those wars. I can't imagine the trauma, yeah, the PTSD that would have interfered with people embracing the gospel. And there's so much to learn. And now we're reading Mormon's words and to think about, he's read their whole record and he's mourning the loss of his people and the promises they have. And Mormon defines himself in a way that I define myself. He says, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. He didn't define himself as a Nephite or a Lamanite. He's from Lehi. They're all the same family. We're all the same family. But he clearly says, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that speaks to me. And so because of that, I had to write this book called In the Hands of the Ganeatans. That's this novel that follows this, follows this agnostic Lamanite as he becomes the, the tribal record keeper. And he's reading the actual words and records of his people, but also trying to embrace the teachings of the Nephites. And his dad has gone through these wars and have had these experiences. And it's such a poignant time in the Book of Mormon around birth, the birth of Christ, where there's a deadline where if Christ doesn't come, we're going to kill the believers. So there's all this conflict. And Zarahemla is this diverse place where these races have mixed and these people in different traditions. There's so much happening. And I wanted to retell that moment from the Lamanite perspective. There's precious truths that we can learn from people that we deem as others. And for me, I learned so much from people that are so different from me. And the Lamanites are that example to me in the Book of Mormon. Where do people get a copy of the In the Hands of the Gadiantans? Yeah, so it's, um, it's published through Covenant. So it's at Deseret Book. It's on Amazon. I think it's Barnes & Noble. You can get it through Covenant. Good. I think there's an ebook version, a print version. Um, but I love it. I just love, I love writing that book because it allowed me to spend more time really thinking about the personal lives and experiences. To me, the Book of Mormon is not just this old text of teachings. It does teach the gospel, but these are people that lived and died and sacrificed for us to have this record. 
And for me, I treasure that. And I wanted to highlight the Lamanites that I feel like have not had their voice heard. I love that. I don't know of anybody that's written a book. There's a lot, there's hundreds of books about the Book of Mormon that people have written. I, in my experience, Cameron, have never heard anybody wrote, written a book from that perspective. So that's really cool. Um, a question came to my mind. I don't know if these are inspirational or just things that come in my mind, but I, so I'm going to circle back to LGBTQ in one last segment. Just advice for LDS parents with an LGBTQ kid, especially, you know, just every situation is different, but just some general advice for LDS parents. Yeah. Yeah, I think about these core emotions here and I think there's, there's conflict often with peace and fear. And I think that's something the gospel brings is that peace. And I think when you have a child that comes out, often that first reaction is fear. Where it's like, I am so scared for you and your future and your salvation and what this will hold for you and all this judgment. And that fear response is normal. It's okay to have that, but don't stop there. So I would say this is going to be a journey that often when children come out to you and say, I'm gay, I've been struggling with this. They've lived this path for many, many years and have navigated this and reflected on this. And often when a parent hears it, it might be the first time they're starting to think about these concepts. And so I would say it's going to be scary. It's going to be new. You're going to make mistakes. There's going to be a learning curve. Have some compassion for yourself. But also you just can't sit on the, hey, you shouldn't do this. That's not going to work. I think about the crux of our faith is families, eternal, the ter- eternal nature of families. So when this comes up in a family, there's work to do. It's time to get educated. It's time to reflect on yourself and expectations that you had. And it's time to listen. It's time to learn. It's not time to preach (laughs) at your child. It's time to learn. And I would say that fear is going to be there and that's okay. But lead with love. I mean, we need that. That's what we need. We don't need to do more teachings and send more conference talks to our children. It's our children need to know that they're loved and accepted. Maintain that relationship. So educate yourself. There's so many resources like the work that you're doing, Mama Dragons. There's so many out there, so many good works where you can get support, you can learn, and you can grow. That's going to be a journey for you too. It's okay to take some time in the wilderness. It took Lehi and Nephi. There's two prophets in that group. Still took them eight years to figure out this Leahona thing to get where they were going. This is a journey, but let's do it together. This shouldn't be an opposition thing. Um, This is not an argument. Um, Sexual orientation is not something that we choose to make our parents' lives harder. Um, It isn't that. This is our journey. This is our path. And I think the purpose of mortality is how can we respond to those needs and truly minister to one another? And often parents are ministering to our children, but often children are ministering to our parents. Because in the end, we're all going through this mortal experience together. So we're going to make mistakes. And when we do, own them, apologize, and lead with love. It's a great segment. We'll conclude with that segment. Um, Really grateful. Um, If you want to find Cam Staley on Facebook, he's Cam, C-A-M-S-T-A-L-E-Y. 
Um, this has been a great podcast. So thank you for your work. Um, uh, work as a psychologist, but this kind of core um, compassionate pastoral side of you that is um, outside of your clinical training. It's a wonderful combination and and your one work in so many areas. When I talk to people like you, I have hope for the future of our church, of our world, of families. And um, on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for your needed work. Cam, and thank our listeners for joining. This is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.